The Rural Health Voice, Episode 76, Black Mental Health. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What is vicarious racism and what effect does it have on mental health for African Americans? Kevin Dunder, founder and CEO of Hurdle, joined me to discuss mental health disparities. Welcome, Kevin. Glad to have you here today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. A good deal. Now, I see that you have a master's of public health. How did you first become interested in public health issues? <laughs> you know, that's an interesting conversation. I actually started my career thinking that I would work in politics. And uh, I got really jaded with how politics work after a couple of election cycles. And, uh, and I was just trying to find my way out. And I took a advocacy job for the American Cancer Society. And it was there that I fell in love with public health uh, and went back to school and got a master's in public health. And um, I've never looked back. Nice. That's an interesting career path. Politics to health it tends to go the other direction. Yeah, I cut my teeth in cancer control. Um, you know, and that was at a time when people still smoked in public places. And, um, you know, I'm really proud of the you know first chapter of my career. I worked in several states helping them become smoke free. Excellent. Excellent. And now your big focus is mental health. Why, why focus on that? You know, it's interesting. I've always saw myself um, being able to work on the most pressing public health issues of the day. You know, as I just alluded to, I started my career in cancer control. I left cancer control and went to work in HIV AIDS. I left HIV AIDS and started to work uh, in childhood obesity. And I left childhood obesity and started to do work in health disparities and health equity. And it was in that space that I started to think of mental health as really the next pressing public health issue. But of course, I had no idea that I would end up leading um, a mental health startup and really uh, in a position to help rethink what um, mental health care should look like uh, in our country. And when did you create Hurdle? Our company started in 2018. We started um, under the banner of Henry Health uh, and... Um, you know, the company's gone through several iterations, and today the name of the company is obviously Hurdle, and we are the leading culturally intentional teletherapy provider. And why create Hurdle? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I know that the audience here is um, folks in a rural background, right? Right. Uh, so I'll tell you a story. Uh, there's a researcher, his name is... Uh, Dr. Sherman James and Dr. James created the construct or is the originator of what we know as the John Henryism construct. And, um, and he basically, as a young researcher, was trying to figure out um, how he would spend his research career. And uh, he was traveling the rural South and he came across this man who um, he was interviewing people trying to figure out like what his research would be. 
and there was this older black gentleman who he was interviewing about his life and the man was in uh, his health was failing and you know he, he had sort of began to lose uh, his mobility and but he wasn't that old and uh, and he said the guy said something to him he said you know when I think about um, how hard I've worked I think that that's the reason I'm in this situation that I'm in uh, and he was sort of referring to his health and this man had, you know, purchased this land and he had made this commitment to uh, sell the land and like uh, to pay off the land rather in, in a short amount of time. And he was able to do that. And, but that also meant that his health, um, you know, uh, was compromised by how hard he worked himself. And so, you no, know, Dr. James heard this story and went back to his office and he really started to think about in particular, he was thinking about the health of black men. And so his research, his body of work became about how black men um, exude a higher level of effort and everyday experiences, ultimately um, causing them to have one of the shortest and thickest lifespans of any population. And he coined the uh, construct of John Henryism. And so when I first, uh, when our company first started, rather, yeah, we started out laser focused on black men and the name of the company at that time was Henry Health. And so that's the story of like, um, it's like, you know, the company, even, you know, the my work, the story of the company really has like these sort of rural underpinnings and understanding, you know, um, mental health. Mm-hmm. Well, and along those lines, in recent years, Virginia designated systemic racism as a public health crisis. What research and initiatives do you think should come out of that designation? You know, I think we are in um, a really interesting time. And I, I think that there is an opportunity to... Um, like learn more about things that have sort of been right in our face for a very long time. Uh, so for example, even at our company on next week, uh, May the 11th, we'll be releasing a paper on vicarious racism and its effects on mental health. Um, you know, we, we now know that, for example, um, the science shows us that small, but yet constant microaggressions have over time have the same impact as a traumatic event. And so, you know, for many people of color, uh, people who are part of marginalized groups who've been experiencing uh, unfair uh, treatment and situations in life, you know, we, we've not really given a large um, space to try to understand how that impacts their health and how that that also impacts their mental health. And so I think we're at this inflection point now that we are a lot more honest about um, you know, the, this hard truth of what people's experiences can have been and can be in this country. And even more importantly, like how systems like the um, mental health system has reinforced these sort of biases and even at times like been um, inherently systemic and oppressing people. And so, you know, I think our work is to better understand the impacts of it, but then like, how do we begin 
to reimagine the policies and, and, and sort of programs or, or even solutions rather that we can uh, develop to address these, these concerns. Mm-hmm. And you are also the author of a book titled The Joy of the Disinherited. What inspired you to write? You know, um, I started my company um, really out of my own personal experience of having experienced depression. And, um, and, and, you know, after my depression, I think it really set me on this path of like my constant mental health journey myself. And, um, you know, the book, actually, I wanted to write a book for years and I wanted to write a book that was more sort of like academic and scholarly. My book ended up being creative nonfiction. And the title of my book is called The Joy of the Disinherited. Essays on Oppression, Trauma, and Black Mental Health. And uh, really, the, you know, what the, the book is, is the collection of essays that are biographical. Um, and they tell the story of me and my family um, as a Black man who um, grew up in, a, in Little Rock, Arkansas, but both of my parents were from rural Arkansas. My mother was from a small farming community called Tucker. Um, and my father was from a small uh, former community called Bradley, Arkansas, in Southwest Arkansas. And so I, I, I tell the story of what it has been like for us, um, you know, to live in the South, to develop our identity in the shadow of oppression and uh, how that impacts our mental health. Um, you know, it's, it is uh, next to my children. I feel like it's perhaps the most beautiful thing that I've created, but you know, for people who, who sort of, um, you know, have similar experiences where they were, they live in places like Arkansas, Alabama, Mississippi, I think that, you know, it, it tells us, you know, it's, it's my story, but I think it is also a universal story of, you know, learning, um, like these questions around your identity and your mental health. At the Virginia Rural Health Association, we have been working to address health barriers in rural communities related to substance use disorders, health inequities for the LGBTQ population, and maternal health, especially for African-American women. What do you think rural advocates need to consider when it comes to mental health disparities for people of color? Yeah, that's a, a loaded question, right? Like, there's, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's not a, a right answer to your question. You know, what, what I would say is, I think for people who are advocates for mental health, particularly in rural areas, it's really important that we begin to normalize mental health and make it a part of our health. But, you know, I think, you know, like the sort of work you mentioned around, um, you know, um, mothers given birth. I mean, we've seen for a very, very long time, I mean, deep, deep health disparities in premature births among Black women. Even when we add the controls of higher education, higher income, and particularly, you know, the the, the disparities even, um, you know, become even more prevalent when we look in rural America. And so I think that we have to like fundamentally take a step back and question, you know, what is happening in, 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 in the day-to-day life and these experiences that are producing uh, these types of outcomes. 
And, and, you know, the argument that I'm trying to make to you is that I think that mental health is an underpinning of all of this. And, um, you know, we need to do, you know, I think we're at this point that we should really be thinking about how we reshape the idea of what it means to be healthy in America. And mental health has to be a part of that. VRHA also talks about intersectionality and the concept that different barriers compound themselves. Do you see intersectionality as an issue for people of color who also live in rural communities? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's sort of like uh, the layers, if you will. You know, there. You know, intersectionality is a, a language that you know those of us in public health and academia and health. You know, we use that language, but what we're really talking about is the, the layers of identity of people. So, you know, you could be a, a woman um, or you could be a black man and be gay or, you know, all of these sort of layers of, of your of your identity and how they begin to shape and mold um, you as a person. But they also then they begin to sort of what experiences does that bring you in your day to day life. So. Yeah, I would just say I think it's incredibly important to always be aware of it uh, and and how it impacts uh, the lives of people very daily. Mm -hmm. And with Hurdle, of course, you are using teletherapy to bridge some of the gaps with, with mental health. What are the positives for using telehealth to address mental health disparities for people of color? Well, you know, first of all, um, you know, the big thing that I think um, we we try to solve for in our company is the hard truth that our mental care system was not designed for everyone, that we have a system that, you know, was really designed with one population in mind and how, you know, we support people from diverse backgrounds has, has not been considered in how we educate our therapists. And so, first of all, you know, we're sort of rethinking in how we train and support our therapists to support people from diverse backgrounds. But to go a step further, you know, there is a workforce shortage in our country uh, around therapists. And, you know, it becomes even more bleak when we start to think about the diversity in our workforce, less than uh, 4% of the therapists in the country are people of color. And so, you know, we, you know, we have a, obviously an incredibly diverse country. And when we think about the diversity of our workforce, we know that like that is problematic. So, you know, the thing about, you know, teletherapy is that we begin to close, you know, those gaps because, um, you know, we can have therapists who are serving populations um, and not be necessarily in that locale. And so this becomes, you know, I think a very unique opportunity to make sure that we can increase access. Obviously, you know, we want to make sure that we're considerate of issues, you know, like broadband issues in rural communities. But, you know, I think that this is like the pandemic really accelerated how we're using technology in many cases and, and, and in good ways, I think is here to stay. Let's talk about workforce a little more. A number of our guests on the podcast have talked about the healthcare workforce and how hard it is to recruit providers to rural communities. 
as a telehealth provider, your employees can serve, you know, anyone, anywhere, as long as they have a broadband connection. Do you also have difficulty recruiting employees? Yeah, I mean, I think our our difficulty around recruiting employees is just because the market is incredibly competitive right now. Uh, the you know the pandemic sort of pushed teletherapy up as a um, you know a high consideration for people. Forty seven percent of Americans you know reported that they hit their lowest point in life during the pandemic. So, you know, we've seen the largest increase in treatment seeking behavior we've ever seen among African-Americans and Asians. And so, you know, we're just we're at this inflection point that, you know, our ability to recruit is, is kind of a, about, you know, quote, you know, if you will, the conditions of the market. Um, but, yeah, the, the workforce issues, I think, you know, is something that you know, we've been having conversations with policymakers. I think that this work is literally going to be you know, generation work for us to, you know, make sure that we can, you know, shore up our workforce. And, and, and the unfortunate thing I would just add to that one last thought is one of the legacies of the, the pandemic is going to be this, this sort of mental health um, situation that we see on our hands. And we're starting to see that play out already. We've seen, you know, um, adolescents suffering from isolation, loneliness. We've seen um, suicide rates go up among adolescents. We've seen suicide rates go up among black men. I mean, so it's just, a, it's kind of, it's an incredibly challenging time for the mental health of Americans. The Surgeon General actually released a report a couple of weeks ago about um, youth mental health. And so I think that we're just really beginning to see and understand like the challenges in front of us. And we got to shore our workforce up for the future to, to meet the needs. Yeah, we uh, recently started offering mental health first aid, and we have been absolutely overwhelmed with requests, um, not only to do the the adult version, but to do the youth version as well. So we're we're training new people to be able to provide that service to our communities. So hopefully, we can do more with that. That's wonderful news, and you know, one of the other things that I would just mention. Um, that we'll see come online later this summer is the 988 line. And, you know, the federal government's intention is that, you know, we will be able to normalize 988 the way that we have been able to normalize 911 around, um, you know, mental health needs. And so, you know, I think that um, all of the ingredients are there for us to really prioritize mental health and to make it really the to you know I, I think it should be a public health priority and I, I see you know many of the you know the right things lining up for that to be the case for it to be lifted up in that way mm-hmm. now many of our rural communities in virginia are overwhelmingly white while there is a, a significant African-American population in Southside and around Chesapeake Bay, in several counties in Southwest Virginia, Caucasians are over 95% of the population for the area, which means that a person of color needing mental health service has almost no chance of finding a therapist who is also a person of color. What advice would you have for the therapist in that situation? That's a wonderful question. And so first of all, let me just say uh, my disclaimer is that uh, I'm not a therapist. I always consider myself for the company that I lead our first client. Um, I experienced depression. Um, 
I saw three therapists before I could find a therapist who uh, I I could form what I now understand to be a therapeutic alliance with. So I just want to want to give that disclaimer, and I want to you know sort of answer that by talking about what we do at our company. That I think you know any therapist if they could uh, you know sort of take the step back and process it in this way, they could have the capacity to do it, and that is to approach things um, with cultural humility, uh, you know, to realize that the experiences that people are having in this world are are real and they're valid. And um, oftentimes, you know, the experiences that, you know, they may be hearing about in therapy, they may have not experienced them and they may think that um, it may sound far-fetched, but to approach those conversations with a lot of humility uh, and, you know, that's what we pride ourselves at at Hurdle is we train our therapists in a technique that helps them improve their cultural humility and cultural responsiveness. And now I'm going to go a step further and just say one thing in this context. I think we've done a real disservice over the last maybe 20 years in, in health and healthcare uh, when we've sort of used the language around cultural competency. And there's now, you know, we're starting to see a pushback against that language because, um, you know, at face value, and you and I are having a nice conversation, but, you know, I doubt very seriously that I could take a two-hour workshop and walk away and declare myself competent in your culture. And and I would hope that you wouldn't you wouldn't do the same and walk away and declare yourself competent. But you know, this is the language that we've used. Um, in health and healthcare, you know, probably for the last 20 years. And I think we're starting to see the unraveling of that and meaning the unraveling in a good way that now people are realizing that culture is much more complex, right? And that everyone deserves to have their culture honored. And particularly in healthcare and in mental health, understanding the nuances of culture um, can be challenging, which is why we should approach it with a lot of humility. Great. And I want to go back to a quote out of your book. You said, every Black family in America knows intrinsically that racism impacts every aspect of life. Now, there's been considerable discussion on social media about how in the current information age, any white person that doesn't think racism is real, much less commonplace, is intentionally in denial. But do you think it's harder to understand the realities of the situation in a community that is comprised of less than 5% people of color? You know, your your question is a quite complex one. And, but, but since you, you referred to the book, I just want to like put in context of the book. Um, You know, in my book, I tell the story of my grandmother, Ella May, who is 105 years old today. And uh, Ella May worked for the same white family in rural Arkansas for 40 years. She was their maid, and my grandfather, George, was a foreman on their farm, okay? And they literally lived on the Albright place. Um, And they eventually moved off the place and built their own house. But the reason I tell you that is because I grew up with Albrights. They were very much a part of my family, but our relationship was obviously not a balanced relationship. 
they were um, they held the power in the relationship, right? They were we were um, inferior to them in the relationship, and so I think you know my my book. What I tried to do in my book is sort of talk about the complexity of these relationships and explain them in narrative when I was sort of telling our stories. And so it certainly is not ever meant, um, you know, like I'm, my, my intent in my work is to never um, be condemning, but I also think that racism um, has done, you know, um, you know, a big disservice to, to all of us. And I think it, it, it can be quite difficult for people who have been in the position of privilege and power to under, to step out of that uh, and to see how that relationship, um, you know, has been compromising or oppressive to the people they've been in a relationship with. You know, when I think about the Albrights, um, I think they would argue that they were very good to my family. They gave us a turkey at Thanksgiving. They gave us a turkey on, you know, our, our duck on the major holidays. They gave us their hand-me-down clothes when, um, you know, they grew out of them. But it was a very oppressive natured relationship. And I think, you know, to understand a relationship like that is to understand America, right? Because this is like the core of America in so many places. But, you know, for, for you know, to go a step further with my book, what I also try to do is to talk about what it means to form your identity uh, in the shadow of living like that and how if you take on an inferior complex, what it can do to you. And so, you know, in this way, I really hope that my book can spark these types of conversations, but not from a place of being divisive, but a place of like, you know, how can we form better bonds and, you know, and be kinder and more loving to one another. Thank you. I, we certainly can't expect to fix this overnight with about three sentences. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. It is a work that um, I think we all have to commit ourselves to. And I would go a step further. I think that there is there's communal work for us to do at the community level. But to be honest with you, most of this work is individual. It is you know, internal collective work that we do, um, you know, to understand who we are in the world and how we fit, how we treat people, how, you know, we've been treated, et cetera. I think that that's the, that's the individual work for us to do, but there's also communal work for us to do. Sure. And with your work, you have an event coming up May 11th. What's the purpose of that? Yeah. So, you know, last year, um, uh, on the anniversary, the first anniversary of George Floyd's death, we released a report on black mental health. And, um, you know, I decided that I think it is really important for our company to contribute to the understanding of, you know, people of color's uh, mental health and how, um, you know, experiences in, in this country impact their mental health. And so this year we commissioned um a research study on vicarious racism. We started out using the term vicarious trauma. And really what the, you know, um, what I asked the, the researchers to consider is what happens to people's mental health when they experience um, like a George Floyd being killed on television, even though they're a thousand miles away. Like what does it do to their mental health? 
And so the research literature, the initial literature review led the researchers to frame it as vicarious racism. And so next week we will be releasing a report on vicarious racism. And I have to tell you, I have actually read the transcripts from the interviews and they are just quite heartbreaking when we see um, like the level of pain, um, the level of suffering and anguish that people experience, even though the event did not happen to them. Like it is astonishing. So now here's what we know. We know a little bit about how therapists experience vicarious trauma through listening to their clients tell them about traumatic events. We know a little bit about that, but we know less about how people of color or people from marginalized groups experience trauma vicariously. And I think it's incredibly important that we begin to understand this because I think it has serious mental health impacts on society. And on May 11th, of course, you'll be presenting this at the Black Mental Health Roundtable in Washington, D.C. Is this open to the public? Can anyone join? Is it too late to register? It's not too late to register. Um, you know, people can visit our website, hurdle.health, to register. Uh, there will also be a live stream feed across our, um, across our YouTube channel. So if people can't make it to Washington, D.C. for the event, the event is open to the public. Obviously, people have to come through security and whatnot to get into the Capitol complex, but it is open um, to the public, and we, we want people to come. It's a perfect opportunity for people who are interested in this work, who are committed to this work, to go a little bit deeper, to have more of uh, an uh, uh, academic footing to understanding what's happening here. And is there a way to get a copy of the report? The report will also be available on our website at hurdle.health for download. It's not available just yet, but it will definitely be available, I think, on the 10th. Well, we will make sure that there are links on our show notes so that people can go find it. Wonderful. I appreciate you sharing it with the audience. I think people will find the report quite compelling. So last question, question I ask all my guests. If you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? Well... Wow, that's a loaded question. First of all, let me just say this. I am, um, I, I, I sometimes refer to myself as a country boy at heart. Um, I always, you know, when we have icebreakers at our company and, you know, they, they sort of like tell me something about yourself that you would, um, you would never, you would never imagine. I always tell people that, you know, listen, uh, I grew up, uh, gutting hogs, I laid pipes in the rice field, I chopped cotton, I bailed hay, you know, um, I, I, I know how to break a horse. It's like, so like if people look at me, they would never imagine, um, you know, like sort of the, the affinity and even connection I have, like with, with rural life, rural life and, and my love for it. But I, I think, you know, one of the things when I think about like my time, you know, as a kid growing up, what what I didn't realize is like how healthy our lifestyles were uh, when we didn't have much. Uh, you know, we always had uh, vegetables directly from the garden. My grandmother canned, and so you know, a treat for us on the summer night was opening a, a jar of peaches or something, or even eating fresh peaches, and so. 
I think that, you know, we saw a bit of this in, um, um, you know, a few years ago when we had a lot of focus on childhood obesity, when we were talking about eating healthy and, um, you know, being physically fit. But I think rural America really knows the secrets to staying healthy in diet and physical activity. And I would really just try to, you know, help people celebrate that as a way of rural life and that as a way of sustaining your health. Absolutely. Let's focus more on the positives than than all the <laughs> negatives. So we, so we, we give our uh, the, the head of the National Health Association a hard time because in every presentation, he refers to rural America as older, poorer, sicker. And we're like, yeah, but wait a minute. <laughs> there, there's yeah. good stuff, too. And, and we need to talk about the good stuff. Yeah. So, you know, the way so there's a, a listen, asset framing is incredibly important. And, and that's really what we're talking about. What are the best assets of rural America? And I think that that is like, you know, the food, the food is raised there, you know, the ability to stay physically active. I mean, I think that that is a wonderful asset of the, of the, um, of, of rural America. And, and by the way, many people left urban America during the pandemic to retreat to lower, and quieter lifestyles. Yes, they did. Right? So, you know, I just think the peacefulness of it, the stillness of it, um, you know, connecting with nature and being outside is is wonderful. And you know what? I live in Washington, D.C. right now. And one of the things I miss when I'm at home in Arkansas in the summertime and I'm in the country going to see my family and I step out and I can literally see the, you know, the stars in the sky. That is such a delight. So I think that there's something there that people should celebrate more. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We very much appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun chatting with you. That's Kevin Dunner advocating for celebrating the strengths of rural America. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, it isn't too late to sign up as a virtual attendee at the National Rural Health Association's annual conference, May 10 through 13. Visit ruralhealth.us for links to the event. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.